Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Through my job at the Sustainable Farming Association, I met this couple uh, that were kind of new in their farming journey, and I spent a few hours with them explaining regenerative agriculture and grazing, and they actually had a few goats, and they were wondering about some of these invasive weeds, and I kind of talked about how they can maybe use the livestock as a service provider for them to do certain management goals. And after I'd left, she sent me this article of a group of farmers in California using goats and sheep to graze dried grass and reduce wildfire risk. And that article featured Andre and Bianca Soares of the Star Creek Land Stewards. And it was pretty impressive, the story that they're doing, the work that they're doing. And so to talk about all that they're doing, we have on the podcast today, both of them, both Andre and Bianca. And I'm really excited to get into their story. So welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thank Thank you, you. Jared. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to have you here and and I appreciate the the opportunity to to share your story with our listeners. I think it's really unique, but maybe we start with a brief overview of what you're doing now and then we'll jump back to the beginning and and how you got to where you're at today if that's okay. So, tell me what what is Star Creek Land Stewards? So, Star Creek Land Stewards is a sheep and goat operation where the primary focus is targeted vegetation for fire fuels management. So we have a herd of about 7,200 sheep and goats, and about half of the year they are out on jobs uh, providing a service where where they're eating down vegetation, mostly in areas where it's more difficult to get um, other modalities into, and providing that service, reducing the vegetation, and creating safe spaces around communities. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to digging into that a whole lot more, but I appreciate that overview. And let's kind of start, go back. I don't know what your your family's history, your history is in this business, but how did you get to where you are both location-wise and the business model that you're doing today? So I was raised in a commercial sheep operation here in the Central Valley of California. My dad had sheep that were mainly he raised for meat and wool. My sister and I were were raised in that, but never really encouraged to have a future in that. Both of us went on to follow my mother's footsteps, became registered nurses. And um, I was a registered nurse in the neonatal intensive care unit of a children's hospital for 29 years. And towards the end of that time, my lifelong friend basically was raised with him, came to me. At that time, he was working for my father as a foreman. He had replaced his own father as my dad's foreman. So Emilio had been around the operation as long as I had, and he was working for my dad and he'd become aware of this company called Star Creek Ranch that he had kind of gotten involved with. My dad had kind of encouraged him to help this gentleman who wanted goats on his area to clean up his property. So that business for Star Creek Ranch started to develop, but the owner was not really interested in pursuing this as a business. Emilio, who, like I said, was wor- started working for him at the time, along with my father, really saw a future in it. And he came to me and said, hey, what do you think? I think there's a future in this. I think you should do this. Hmm. And um, I'll never forget the day because I thought he was absolutely crazy. Um, <laughs> absolutely crazy. I was said, well, what, do you, what are you talking about? And why do you need me? I'm a nurse. 
And he said, no, it's going to, it's really, it's a it's different than just a commercial operation. I think we need, you know, you need to be managing it and I will help with all the livestock. And I really think you ought to do it. Anyway, I did some research and, um, I decided to do it. I, I bought the livestock and I bought the equipment, the initial livestock and the equipment. And at that point there were about four employees. So I took those all on and we just started looking for work and, and, um, that's kind of that's kind of how it started. We haven't looked back. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for the work you did as a nurse. We, we just had a, four, we have a four month old now and spent a couple of days. We were fortunate not to have to be in the NICU, but a couple extra days at the hospital for some things. And gosh, the nurses in that department, amazing people. You guys are the best. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, and, and so to get a little more clarity on this. So the Star Creek Ranch that you were taking on, were they already in the business then of kind of doing this land service based stuff or did they have kind of a land base that their livestock were based on? So they had just started dipping their toe into the service end of it. Um, they had acquired, Emilio had helped that owner acquire some sheep and goats to clean up his own property, which was called sure. Star Creek Ranch. And then some of the neighbors really liked what they saw the goats do. And so the neighbors wanted them over there. So that's kind of how that started. And then they got a multi-year contract, a three-year contract to provide service for a large regional park district in the area. And it was right after they got that, that the owner realized he didn't, it wasn't really something he wanted for the long term. He didn't want to manage employees. He he just really was, the primary goal was just to get his property cleaned up. So that's when he pivoted and I bought the business. Huh, that's that's interesting. He kind of unintentionally grew a, you know, found a need. There is obviously this need for this this service in the industry. And when you were brought that decision, obviously you mentioned that at first you thought it was crazy. And I can imagine that it seems yes. kind of crazy. But what was the mindset kind of transition to think, okay, maybe this isn't so crazy. Maybe this does need to be done and maybe I should actually do it. Cause that, you know, especially coming from you said 20 plus year or however long it was 29 years, in, 29 years not in agriculture. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a big shift. Um, well, you know, the more I learned about it and the prior owner was very, very great about transitioning with me and, and answering questions that I had. And, um, you know, it really is a pivot from commercial operations, typical commercial sheep operations in that there is a lot of administration. And I had a lot of, in my, my previous life at the hospital and otherwise, I had I had was in management and nursing for a long time. So I had managed employees. I had managed my husband's optometry practice, had done payroll for people. I had also served on the local public school district board here in my area for 15 years or something at that point. And so I kind of knew one side of public contracting, but I had never been on the other side of public contracting as a vendor. That didn't scare me so much. So I had been familiar with a lot of the a lot of the aspects of running that type of business uh, just in other areas. And so I felt kind of prepared to do that. And I knew Emilio would manage the livestock. He, I wasn't going to have to jump in and learn that. He was going to support me while taking care of the livestock. He was going to take all of that issue off of my hands because he absolutely knows what he's doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you talk holistic management, one of a lot of times they talk about one of the biggest issues is that, that kind of social dynamic and labor dynamic and to come into a business with a kind of your 
the perfect staff, the perfect person in mind already to assist you and, and, you know, help in that along with your skills and, and knowledge, it was kind of sounds like a good fit. Like it maybe it didn't seem so wild. The more you thought about it, it wasn't maybe so crazy. Yeah. And the more I thought about it, I mean, I always loved, I always loved the animals. And um, the more I thought about it, it was like, just make so much sense. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. certainly from where I sit today, it makes so much sense what we're doing. Um, it's what herds of livestock have done on the landscapes in California and all through the United States, right? For decades, right? They yeah. roamed, managed vegetation, which took care of wildfires. And now that we've moved into these areas that were historically inhabited by livestock, the livestock have gone, the wild livestock have gone. And so bringing the sheep, domestic livestock, sheep and goats back into those areas just makes so much sense. Yeah. And had you considered getting back into agriculture before? And and I guess maybe what's the, what are the barriers to entry of getting into agriculture in that region in a more traditional sense of owning or managing, renting land and buying livestock? Is that, is that a, you know, had that been a consideration and is it possible? It's difficult. Okay. It's possible. Uh, buying land, especially in California is very, very difficult for mm-hmm. someone to start up and say, I'm going to buy some land enough to support livestock is very difficult because they're covering so much ground. So you have to be able to, in one way or another, control a significant amount of livestock one way or another. Um, And that's difficult, especially, like I said, in California, where those parcels of land are becoming fewer and fewer. Mm -hmm. I had not thought about getting back into agriculture, like I said, but I, I always loved it. At the time, my children were about 17 and 14. And they both love ag and they love, we grew up in a rural area, right? So they loved all of that stuff. And I thought there was a chance that one or both of them would also be interested in it. And so it just, it was a good time in my life to pivot. And I felt like it, I I felt like I was, I felt like I was going to be successful. At least I didn't think I was going to fail. I'll put it that way. I didn't think I was going to fail. And fortunately, my daughter who was, what were you, a senior in high school at the time? Yeah, I think so. Senior in high school at the time when I took it over in the end of 2013, she went on to UC Davis and and majored in ag economics and mm-hmm. loves the animals. And she's been very instrumental. She, she now does project management for me because yeah. during the grazing season, we get to be very, very spread out. And so we have up to nine, 10 herds working in different locations at one time hmm. um, and sometimes eight different counties. And so it's, uh, she's been really instrumental in that link between what's happening on the ground and me. And of course, we can get into the herders who are really the day-to-day operators of livestock. Yeah, I want to get into all of that, that management, because that's one of the biggest things in my mind is like this logistical nightmare of moving, you said 7,200 head of animals all over the countryside. <laughs> I'm sure it's uh, insane. But Bianca, I'm curious, she kind of brought you into this conversation. I'm glad, so glad she did. And I wanted to get your perspective when she started talking about doing this different thing. I mean, did you think at that time that you maybe would be interested in participating in this in the long run? Did you have any interest at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I always wanted to, I I always loved the sheep. Like I, I grew up around my grandparents' sheep. That was Mm. like anytime Mm. I could go out and see them and hang out with them and move and, you know, work with them. I was there. This was like a total dream when she <laughs> told us this is what she was thinking of doing. I was like probably the biggest supporter. 
And I always knew I wanted to work in agriculture. I didn't know what sector that would be in because I hadn't, up until this time, I didn't see a path forward for me to work in livestock because, because the way that the sheep, typical commercial sheep operations had been going and the way it had been explained to be to me by my grandfather was that in all likelihood, there wouldn't be much of a sheep industry by the time I was an adult. Hmm. Now, granted that has pivoted as well in some respects, but you know, this vision of this style of operating livestock business in the form of a service and as targeted grazers hadn't really occurred to many other people in the sheep industry, I would say at that time. So I was like totally thrilled when I saw this opportunity and have absolutely been, you know, thrilled to be a part of it ever since, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned a good point that this was a new philosophy of this service-based livestock, and it's somewhat come a little bit more, become a little bit more popular in recent years. And in the Midwest, it maybe is still a little bit further behind you. But when this opportunity came your guys' ways, what was it that made you actually see this as an opportunity and not just like all oh, those nutty folks, they're not ever, that's not ever going to become, you know, anything that that's ridiculous. Who would pay you to graze their land? Everybody else in history has paid to graze land or something, you know, what in your mind made you see that as an opportunity and not just something out there? Um, well, I think a couple of things. One is, well, first of all, be clear. I did not quit my nursing job when I took over Star Creek. Okay. I was doing both for about six or eight months. And that's why, because I did, I wasn't sure, you know, uh, but I was very optimistic because like I said, once I started learning about it, it just made so, it makes so much sense. And so as I started getting into the admit more of the administrative side and learning more about how I can make this work, talking to public entities, agencies, seeing what, what areas in California that people might be most open to it. And, um, it, I really started to see the potential and I started pursuing it more. And, you know, the need, the demand was just growing very, very quickly. So I realized I had to pick one after about, I think it was eight months or something. I realized I had to pick one and I, I just, for whatever reason, I just felt really confident that this was going to be mm-hmm. successful. And I knew I really enjoyed it. And yeah. as much as I loved my job that I did for so long, I, I, have never looked back. I've never regretted, resent, regretted it one, one bit. It's also something, and we, I remember talking, we would talk about this in, in the early years of this whole thing where it was like, once we saw what the goats could do or the herds in general could do primarily mm-hmm. in these urban spaces, in these neighborhoods where you can't get up there with manpower and it's, it's not practical to be in there with humans cutting things or spraying sure. is not allowed and shouldn't be used in a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. Once you see what the animals can do, you can't unsee it. You know, what, once we saw, we were like, oh my gosh, like anyone that goes by here is going to look at this and think, why are we not doing this everywhere? And that kind of became a thing for us where we, you know, after we saw it ha- work in one place, it was like, oh my gosh, let's, it's, you know, if they want to try it, let's try it over here. And then it worked there. And then we would be driving around anywhere. And, you know, it was like, you know, we could no longer just like talk about music in the car. It was like, oh, they, they should be using goats. They should be using goats as we're looking out the window. You know, yeah. it just it became very clear to us so quickly that this was something that absolutely works. It absolutely yeah. works. And it's applicable in so many instances and can be used by such a wide array of clientele that it, it's really hard not to get confident behind it when you see 
when it's that drastic of a, of a difference, you know, it's very clear to see. And often it's so much so that often when we are working in an area, when a neighboring agency or a neighbor, a neighbor, private owner sees that goats at work, they find out who we are and they contact us and say, I want, I want the goats. Can you bring the goats over? Because they've seen it, you know? So it's, um, that's how we get the majority. The majority of the business that we get is word of mouth. I'm curious, like, so the listeners that I have on this podcast are all over the country and even over the world. So I'm curious if you could describe mm-hmm. maybe the visual, like what you're seeing. First of all, what is the existing state when you come onto a property? I'm not really sure. I mean, is this wasteland? Is it grassland? What? And then what is the change that is actually being seen with these livestock? What are you, what are you doing? So we'll talk about two different two different types two different types of landscapes. For example, in Marin County, which is the North Bay area. Here in California, just, it's just north of San Francisco. For anyone that's not um, sure. familiar, literally connects one side of the Golden Gate Bridge. The other side of the Golden Gate Bridge would be San Francisco. Okay. So there are lots of small towns, communities that are nestled right into that coastal range of mountains, and most of that was grassland long, long ago. It has over time been taken over by invasives. The fire department in that area has become very aware. In California, wildfire is a big deal, right? It's yeah. a big, big deal. And yeah. so the, the fire department in that area brought us in to do a couple of things, to create defensible space behind homeowners' houses that are nestled right into these foothills, okay? Because if there's a fire in the foothills, right, they want to protect it. So we create, we graze about 100 to 200 feet behind homes, mm-hmm. create a defensible space for them. And then in throughout that coastal range behind those communities are fire roads. And so they are, bring us into strategically graze alongside those fire roads and keep them very, very clear. Some of it is grassland. Some of it is, you know, a canyon to your right, a canyon to your left that's mm-hmm. really overgrown with um, brush, very, very dense brush. So sure. they bring us in to, and what we do is we keep the space along those fire roads nice and clear so that the t- fire trucks can maneuver safely and not start a fire while they're trying to get to a fire. And they've also in those areas used fire science to help them determine where the most strategic areas are for the grazing to occur. In order to create a fuel break based on their historical data of how wildfires would burn should there be a fire. So we would create it rather than graze. And this is probably another important point, but not, we don't, you know, if it's a 200 acre park or open space, we don't graze 200 acres, right? We are creating a strategic fuel break in one portion of that, that has been determined in this case by fire, you know, historical fire science, so that we're not disrupting the entire ecosystem and entire habitat that's surrounding this area. It is a very limited, targeted grazing that's happening. So it's only happening mm-hmm. in one spot in order to create that fuel break, be it uh, a fire road or just defensible space. So um, yeah. it's not like they're, you know, the animals are not brought in in most cases to graze everything. It's just, it's one area in sure. order to create a barrier. 
on this topic of the fire thing, I, I'm from Minnesota. We're fortunate here to have a lot of moisture and wildfires are not mm-hmm. usually a concern. This year was extremely dry and still it wasn't to the level of concern of wildfire. But this summer, sometime along the line, it was probably kind of during a wildfire season out west, I think. I saw this video on showed up on some Facebook or YouTube thing or something like that of this of these firefighters in their truck trying to drive and this massive fire on the side of the road like right next to them and you could hear the yeah. panic in their voice and like for the listeners like that was the I feel like that was the first time I ever fully understood the intensity of what this is out there. I mean, you could hear the panic. They were like, they didn't know if they were going to make it through. And at the end of the video, they did like somehow drive out and they've got at, you know out of a way of the danger of the fire or something. But this is terrifying stuff. So when you talk about this, I just, I guess I just share that to give context to the folks like me who aren't in fire country, like that this is a real valuable service y'all are providing and, and sounds maybe like, I don't know, easy to glance over, but it's something that we, I have not really experienced uh, with the exception of that short little video clip. So it's cool to hear your perspective on what you're doing. You know, another thing in that area of the North Bay that we're talking about, my whole communities are nestled, as I mentioned, to this this coast um, coastal range. And mm-hmm. in a few cases, there are schools nestled at the end of two lane roads right into the right into the coastal range, deep within a neighborhood, deep okay. deep within a neighborhood. So um, the fire, their emergency evacuation, excuse me, their emergency response plan for those schools is not to get the kids out. Is for them to shelter in place because they know they will die trying to get them out. Because the traffic would be is going to be near impossible of sure. people in general trying to evacuate these neighborhoods, wow. and that's another reason why. And it kind of has to do with what the video you just brought up. Why grazing fire roads is so important because in a lot of cases, you know, like she said, it's a two lane road. If there's a wildfire coming down, it will be a one lane road. They're going to be going one direction out of out of this yeah. neighborhood. There won't be people coming in both. They'll need to use both sides of the road to get people out. Sure. Fire trucks will not be able to enter in that neighborhood because the traffic will all be moving one way. So mm-hmm. having these these fire roads that are out in the in the coastal range, it's you know, it's a dirt road. Mm-hmm. Having those opened up and accessible to fire crews is absolutely essential because in a lot of cases the only chance of getting fire crews in to stop wildfires that may be coming into these communities is to use those types of roads. Yeah. So it that I mean the the fire road thing is just I mean on one respect it creates a fuel break so that again if a fire were to come ideally you would hit that fuel break and either smolder out and stop mm-hmm. completely or at least slow enough to give fire response crews a chance to fight it and get up there. But sure. in another respect it gives fire crews a a way to access, you know. Yeah. To even be able to do their jobs at all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, And and so, sorry, I got us off track on that because just as you talked about fire roads, that came to my mind right away and and seeing that. But there was, you had said kind of two landscape changes, or maybe you had more on that, but what was the the second kind of environment where you're working? So the second, um, which is, and there's there's more than just two, but just to give listeners sort of a little bit of a contrast, there is sometimes, this is actually also by the coast, but some areas that are large parcels, well, large parcels, uh, you know, 30 acre parcels next to neighborhoods controlled by the city, habitat for protected species. So we're brought in and we are strategically working with a biologist to, and when I say protected species, both animal and plant species. Okay. 
So we're brought in to strategically graze in, for example, a 30-acre parcel, what ends up looking like a mosaic. Looks like camouflage. Yeah. (laughs) When you look at it, when they color the map for us to use, it's, it's, yeah. Well, it ends up looking like a mosaic because we have to avoid this little riparian area, um, but hit this because there is an invasive plant species we want to attack, but don't hit this four feet from it because this is the protected plant species. There might be a bird nest in one section we have to avoid it. So it's, and there are cases when we have to be extremely accurate and strategic with our fencing and grazing because we're either specifically targeting an invasive or avoiding a native, whether it's a plant or an animal. Yeah. So I, I've always... I guess this is kind of getting into the logistics of it and stuff. Been told cattle are pretty darn easy. You can keep them in with a single hot wire. Sheep will find a way out if it's there, but goats will seek a way out. I mean, it's like their (laughs) daily job almost of like, how can I get out and stuff? So you're talking about moving fences like really intentionally and trying to keep in this Mm -hmm. animal and you're moving constantly. I mean, there's no permanent infrastructure Talk briefly, no. or I mean, not briefly, just I'm sure to explain how you do this, it probably will take longer than a brief moment or two, but how do you manage the, the actual movement and fencing of these livestock? So I would say that description is pretty accurate. Goats, <laughs> if they will not seek it out, they will create a way out. They, sure. um, they're, they're just mischievous and curious animals and they are good at it. We use electric netted fence so rather than one single hot wire, it, this is becoming a more common type of fence to use with both sheep and goats, but it's little squares of electric net. And like we said, we you know they're strategically placed out to create a paddock. I don't think we've explained this yet. Our typical herd size for a project is about 400 animals. That's, our, that's how many we use per project typically. Sometimes that varies. And we make paddocks that are about, you know, say we're going to be doing a 15 acre project. We're not going to fence all 15 acres at once and put all the animals in all 15 acres and just say, go for it. We create smaller paddocks. I would say two to three acres, though. They're, they're not exact. It really has to do with where we can get fencing in excessively, but probably at two to three acres in size. And the animals graze in this one, two acre section. When they finish that, we move, we drop the middle fence and the other fence has already been set up and they move into the second paddock and pull the, the, pull the middle fence back up and now they're in here and they graze that and we do the same thing. We just kind of drop the fence. So the paddocks are always being built and taken down. And we do that to ensure that the animals are evenly grazing the whole project. It also makes sure that, you know, if we've got all the animals in one site and it's a, we have 15 acres we're doing and it was all fenced at once, you know, we'd have water at one end and the animals... They're not grazing the opposite end from the water because it's a long walk. So keeping everything closer together ensures a more even graze, uh, less traversing back and forth. And we it, it works really, it's really well, it does a good job as far as evenly grazing all the different plant species that we might be dealing with. As for net fencing, it's checked throughout the day. You know, you're looking for holes, you're looking for issues. A lot of times we're working in areas where there's deer and they'll jump over it or they'll knock it down. And so we've, you know, you've got to be monitoring that. It's a lot of monitoring the fence line to make sure that there isn't holes or obstructions or anything. We've had issues where, you know, teenagers will come in and knock it down and try to go hang out with the goats and then the goats go for a walk or try to. So it's just, it's a lot of monitoring. It's not at all like a leave up, walk away, forget about it till they're done kind of a thing. It has mm-hmm. to be monitored quite, quite frequently. And monitoring is, you know, when you're not monitoring, you're building it, I'm sure. Because if you're moving regularly, those <laughs> yeah. fences are not easy. <laughs> to, and those, that takes time 
Right. And maybe you had something else on that you want to say, but I'm curious on the labor. I mean, 400 had 7,200 total. And you're talking 15 to 20 groups, you know, of, of animals at a time, fencing, temporary fencing constantly. Labor must be a nightmare <laughs> to manage and keep track of and all these different groups. Are they relatively close so that you can share labor between groups or how does that work? We don't typically share labor. Just about every 400 head herd will have a herder with them. And that the herder is stays on site in a self-contained camp trailer, has his two or so border collies that are his working dogs, and typically inside the enclosure, depending on if the, what the predation threat is, we will li- often have livestock guardian dogs in with the, in with those herds. And then we manage the the herders between um, as far as supplies and what they need and moving them and that kind of thing. Assistance if they need it with yeah. a project. Yeah, we try to keep one one herder free so that he can be the, the helper to move on any of the move days if they're walking sure. a herd or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, we also have what we refer to as camp tenders, which are uh, other employees that will make will deliver supplies and any other, you know, take supplies and return supplies or things that need to come home whatever, from the grazing site. Move equipment around, assist. Yeah, there's okay. there's usually there's always some free person that's available to help, whether someone needs extra help building fences or moving the herd, like we said, or moving equipment, anything like that. But the logistics during the grazing season, those logistics are tremendously challenging. Emilio, who's our livestock manager, is an expert at it. And we have to to plan and manage transportation for those animals. And most of the time during the grazing season, we're using gooseneck trailers because huge livestock trailers are too big to get into most of the places where we go. And so planning for moving, sometimes we've got three or four goosenecks on a road, on the road at, at a time, moving one or two herds per day. And those goosenecks are typically deployed from our home base, which is about on average an hour and 45 minutes away from our first grazing location. And then the other thing that makes it very, very challenging is that, you know, as all the planning we, we can do and estimate, you know, most of what we do, we're we're not in charge because mother nature is always the one who's actually in charge, right? We can't ever tell a client, I will be there four weeks from today because depending on where that herd's coming from, how long they're going to be there, we can do our best to estimate that, but mother nature's in charge, right? The vegetation, the climate is what really is the trigger. And so we can make a five-day plan, but usually that changes 12 times before the end of that week yeah. because there's just so many moving parts between the herds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, all, it really always comes down to how slow or how fast the herds eat. You know, sure. if the herd, the herd, we had especially, and so like she said, we, we have a schedule, obviously we go in order, we have, you know, plans of who we're going to go to after each, each project, but pretty much all an estimation is to see like how long we're going to take at each project. So I can give clients an idea. And so I can give us an idea because like we said, Emilio needs to have an idea of when he's going to need to have trucks available to load up the herd and move it. Mm-hmm. And the herders need to know about moving equipment and things like that. So every, every client is aware that there is a range. We, they will, we will show up. It's this Sometime I'm, you know, I'm aiming for this date, but we're in constant communication about, you know, I need to pull back a day. I mean, I need to come in a day earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, So there has to be a lot of communication between us and the client about 
the re, you know, how realistic it is for us to be in and begin a project on any given date. And yeah. that's a huge part of my job is making sure that our clients are educated on how this works and how at the end of the day, we're working with livestock. We're not, you know, we joke, we're not Amazon. I don't, I can't guarantee yeah. you what day your order is going to arrive. That's yeah. not what we do. We're not in that business. We, we work with livestock. If they decide, you know, there was a little bit of extra moisture in the air this morning and the feed doesn't taste quite as good, we might take a day longer. And there has to be a lot of clarity and communication between us and the client on that so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah. Managing expectations is a huge, huge part of the service. Yeah. Um, that I think helps all, helps everybody, helps us, and it certainly helps the client. Um, so, like Bianca said, that that education from the get go, if they're if they're new to grazing, we we try to set manage those expectations from the beginning. And and there's a lot of client communication. We never we never show up at a site that we've never with animals that we've never seen before. Right. So we always go in advance, provide the do a walkthrough, do the assessment provide the, the proposal, working out an agreement with the client. And then when a herd is on site one grazing, the planning then begins with that herder and Bianca, for example, the project manager, for where they're going next. So while the herd is on site one, Bianca and that herder are planning for what it's going to take to get site two done completely. We do a lot of work with maps. And so getting, you know, agreeing on maps with the client, you know, sometimes it takes discussion about that's not realistic because the goats will, that's too narrow of an area. They'll challenge the fence. We're going to need to take a little bit more, hmm. or maybe we'll do, we suggest maybe you do this. If these are your goals, maybe we do this area and this one is probably less important. So we always have a map before we show up so that everybody understands what the scope of the project is. Do you use a specific mapping app or something like Pasture Map, Maya Grazing, or do you use hand, you know, paper maps and or how what technologies are you using to assist in your management? So we've tried a few different mapping options and it really and honestly, the more advanced they get, the less we use them. Okay. So <laughs> I have I have tried a few of these more mobile apping services where mm -hmm. it will like GPS show you where you are within the project. Yeah. But oftentimes, once I provide that technology to our herders, they are like, can you just give me the Google version that we used yes. before? So, you know, that's typically what we end up doing is I, I do all of the <laughs> mapping typically on a Google like product and will then, you know, I have it live on my own phone to use and we'll kind of guide it that way and GPS it and things like that. But when it comes down to the site, usually all all the guys want is either a screenshot of it or a nice laminated printout of it with with our boundaries. Because the thing is, is I know that those all of I've actually people have been contacting us about this recently. You know, they can show you slope and they can show you all these different factors about the land. But in reality, we want to get there on the ground and look at it. If you tell me what the slope is from a from a mapping service, that's great. But until we're on the ground and look at it and see what exact vegetation is on that slope and how, what it looks like, it doesn't really mean anything to us. So mm -hmm. what really what we prefer using is just a very simple map with an outer border of where we want the fence line to be. And then we do a conduct a site visit. Myself and our whatever herder is going to be working on site, we get oriented with landmarks, so trees and bushes and buildings or wherever we're at. Sure. And we kind of go from there. So 
the more complicated and more advanced the mapping is, which actually could probably make it simpler, on the less it's been useful to us, we kind of continue to revert back to just a good old paper yeah. map most of the time. We, we like, the herders really like to see uh, landmarks on the map because yeah. when they're putting up the fence, that's what they need. Yeah, that's really all they want. So any of the extra layers are really in the way. All they want to know is like, if I drew the fence line here and there's a tree here, that, that's all they want to see. So acreage is really important. We like to know how, you know, how totally. many acres the pro project is. And like she was saying, you know, say a client says, you know, I have 25 acres and it's right here and it's this perfect square or rectangle or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We show up and we've got this, you know, perfect rectangle of 25 acres on a map and we're there and we're looking at it and we're going, mm, you know, they're not really going to eat. Then, you know, this is a really, really steep slope and we're worried about erosion. I don't think we should put the goats on that or the sheep on that. And so we carve that chunk out. And then we define another area and part of what's in their property is a pond. And we're like, well, they're not going to graze the pond. So we, you know, exclude that portion. And suddenly a map, there are a property boundary that would be very clearly, oh, it's 25 acres, just graze it. You know, we have to conduct that real in real time on the land and say, okay, but, you know, for your grazing goals and your fire prevention grazing goals or whatever the actual goals of the client are, these things aren't realistic and this isn't actually going to apply to using animals. So I think we should fidget the map a bit. And so there's a lot of that that goes back and forth um, between us and the client of, you know, coming up with a map that we think is reliable and representative of what both parties have in mind. And then it's that final determination that we, that we will use. Well, something we talk about on this podcast a lot is adaptive grazing. And it sounds like that's pretty much the perfect definition of what you guys are doing. You're adapting to just about everything. Um, you've, you've talked about clients a lot. What is your average client? Or would you say you're more public versus private owned? And what are their, usually what are their goals maybe in addition to fire management? I would say, and I, I really need to take a look at this and get a better accurate estimate, but I would say, uh, Acreage wise, we're probably about 75 public, 25 private percent percent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And most of those, <clears throat> pardon me, I'd say about 85% of those are maybe 90% of those closer acres are really the goal is fire prevention. They will also focus, they've learned that we can do both at the same time, right? We can manage invasives while providing the fire the fire security. So we have done extra work in some areas on an invasive species that's cropped up or that kind of stuff. But the majority of it is really fire prevention in lieu of previous modalities that they've used. So a lot of counties can no longer use herbicides in California. So that's changing, you know, that, that means they're they're not putting someone on a sprayer. So they can also weed eat, but they've learned that it's probably more cost effective and um, more amenable to the public to have livestock out there. Because once you, when you see the livestock out there, if you see it, two acres being grazed by livestock next to two acres with five people with weed eaters, nobody wants the weed eaters next to you. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Nope. Mm -hmm. The livestock are calm. They're pleasant. P people love them. Especially during covid you know, as everybody, when, especially out here in California, was on lockdown in these public spaces, a lot of these communities we work in that are primarily in the Bay Area um, near San Jose or San Francisco, 
these communities border right up to these regional park districts or big open space areas that have public walking paths and things. The amount of people that were at home because of COVID that then were out every single day to just come and stare at the goats or the sheep Mm -hmm. or whatever herd was there was, I mean, astronomical. I've never, ever seen that many people come out to just watch the animals and they would do it day after day. (laughs) I would show up on the site and people are like, oh, well, you know, this one's doing this today. You know, they had memorized the herd's (laughs) habits, you know? And it it becomes a huge draw. Yeah. And especially, you know, huge for morale. I mean, the communities Mm -hmm. were distraught when we finished grazing back in, I think it was 2020 that was so nuts. But, you know, when we finished one project, they were like so upset that the goats were gone, that they were calling to ask us where they moved to so that they could go drive and visit them somewhere else. So so it is, it it, it offers a whole other, you know, therapeutic side to it along with the actual service that's being performed. But I think when we're talking about clientele, I think it's important to kind of explain what types of people you know, you, we can get a, a grazer can be contracted by a private homeowner who has mm-hmm. anywhere from a quarter of an acre in their yard to 10 acres. Mm-hmm. We don't, we work on different acreage sizes, but you know, a private homeowner who has a very small parcel would be interested in grazing and it could work out to use grazing. You know, it's not like we're going to, they're coming in and grazing their lawn. It's like, they've got this, this, you know, unmanaged, unmanaged space, space, unmanaged sure. spaces. Yeah that they border that's covered in uh, grass, poison oak, overgrown oak trees, overgrown trees in general that have, you know, are draping down to the, to the floor, uh, brush, brooms, all kinds of different types of vegetation. It could look like mm-hmm. a grassland. It could look like a dense, thick green jungle. Yeah. There's a lo- wide array of the types of projects that we work on, but it could be a private homeowner it could be a private rancher. It could be a school. It could be a school district. It could be working for a city, a public agency, a regional park district. Hmm. I mean, there's a very wide <laughs> array of the type of clientele. I don't yeah. think, I don't know of a single type of person that wouldn't, this wouldn't apply to in that yeah. respect. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's something owner. that <laughs> maybe a guy living in. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> owners, we do a lot of work for homeowners associations. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Oh, that's wild. I, I, first of all, yeah. I love like that, the therapeutic thing, like that's so cool because I mean, I always, I mean, one of my favorite things is walking around the pasture with our cattle at, you know, sunset and stuff. So I can right. totally understand it, but it's something <laughs> that's like, you guys are providing a service like like literally, like you're saying, an entertainment, uh, therapeutic service that you know that I hadn't considered yet. That I was thinking, you know, right. maybe aesthetic, maybe making an aesthetically pleasing grass, you know, or a space or the wildfire. But right. yeah, right. just a pure enjoyment thing. You're giving people something they otherwise never would have been able to experience. So that's exactly. awesome. The other thing we love to do is to offer field trips for schools. Yeah. So if we're grazing in an area that's uh, near a school, we'll host a day where the teachers can bring their classes out on a rotating mm-hmm. basis and come up and we'll, we'll provide a very small paddock of animals for them to be closer. And we just talk about the animals, talk about what they do. And there's so many people, as I'm sure you're aware, that don't have any, they're just so removed from um, agriculture that there's, it's really all new to them. And so it's yeah. always fun to do that. Yeah, it really, this type of an industry, because we're taking livestock out of a rural community and putting them into extremely urban spaces, 
<laughs> literally in, in people's backyards. I mean, I don't even get to have the goats in my backyard and these people do. But yeah. it really helps kind of bridge that gap between an urban community and an agricultural community and people that have never experienced livestock other than going to like a petting zoo are now getting to interface with us and ask questions and watch the animals. And, you know, they all of a sudden have a way larger understanding of how livestock management happens and how it, how, you know, the reality of it and what's real. And, you know, they get to see firsthand from their bedroom window, what animal livestock management looks like. And it, it is tr a tremendous support for us to have community members from urban spaces that have I've otherwise had no experience with livestock, all of a sudden becoming our biggest supporters and fans yeah. and following the animals to different counties just to visit with them. Um, <laughs> that's, so cool. that's been a really huge treat and something that I didn't expect to, to find in this is that, you know, we really get to, to bond with these people, members of other communities in a way mm -hmm. that I just didn't, I had never considered was, was likely to come out of something like this. Yeah. Have you had any negative feedback from communities or community members? If, if you don't mind me asking. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. There's course, always, there's always one or two. Uh, let's see. Let me think about what oh, there. Uh, sometimes we get pushback or the client public, public clients get pushback from people in their community. Sometimes that think grazing is bad, kind of generally think grazing is bad. So they do a really good job of, I think our, my experience is they, the clients will con talk to us about it and we help them answer some of the questions. Um, sure. but they, it's not without, uh, it's not without criticism, you know, some people, mm -hmm. but far and away, it is so much, it's received so much um, more positively than negatively. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. get a lot out of it, you know, we mm -hmm. get a lot out of it because of the public feedback. And oh, I'm just, just starting to, well, I feel like I'm just getting into the surface, you know, of the, of all the things you manage between the <laughs> groups of livestock, the people within the business, the herders, the, you know, the different staff and the client base. I mean, how many, I'm curious, how many clients do you, do you have any estimate how many clients you actually have to manage relationships with? I mean, it sounds like oh, dozens, if not hundreds. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably about in an average in an average grazing year, probably seventy to seventy five. Yeah, that's clients. Wild. But then yeah. you have to think that a lot of a lot of our, and I probably do a lot of this, but a lot of our interface we end up doing in communication that we have to that we keep up is not with our direct clients, but with public, sure. you know, members of the communities that are living in these areas where the grazing is being done. You know, they. Mm -hmm. We've got our, our signs out that instruct people, you know, don't touch your electric fence and keep your dog on a leash. And it has our contact information on it. And people will get a hold of us with questions or, you know, mm -hmm. this they saw this happen or ideas or they, you know, oh, my gosh, I love the goats. Where are they going? So there's a lot of other other communication yeah. that goes into not communicating with our clients at all, but just public the members that responding, are responding. Yeah. yeah, responding yeah. to the public about all kinds of other things. You need a full-time public relations yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, committee just to manage all of that communication yes. that I'm sure you're getting. Yes. One small question that just popped into my head that I'm not sure, water. How do you get water where you need them, where you need it? We either, most often we get a hydrant meter from the local water district. Okay. So we get a hydrant meter and the herders are then able to access water from a fire hydrant put it sure. on and put it fill a portable water tank that we then take to our grazing locations. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, if the if there's, uh, if there's water available on site, otherwise from the client, we always prefer to use that. But if not, we're always prepared to provide our own water. And in most cases, and this is, I mean, most, I think livestock operators are using this type of a system now, but in case you're not from familiar, though, then the tank or the direct water source is then hooked up to a water trough with an automatic water feeder on it. So as the animals, you know, it's not like water's leaking out, especially in California with the drought, which is very, very water conscious. So there's a, a float like, valve and as yeah. the animals drink down, the water will fill. And then when the animals aren't drinking and the water's at a certain level, it doesn't, it doesn't drip or anything. So. No, that that's interesting. And I forgot, I guess, or didn't think about the fact that you're mostly grazing in urban areas. So water access is, that's kind of an advantage to versus like grazing out in wildlife and, you know, some out in the middle of nowhere kind of a thing. You have water access in a lot of places. I'm curious, like, do you, do you, all of your sheep and goats, like lamb and kid as well? Like, or is that, I mean, is that a big part of your business plan is the actual production of, of livestock as well and production of meat, or is that not part of it? It is part of it, but it's a small part. Okay. Um, so right now, all of the animals are here back in the Central Valley having their, their lambing is going on now and kidding will start in about three, January. January. Um, so I do sell um, some of my offspring of my sheep every year, keep some replacements. We, every year we try to figure out, it's the ongoing question. How many do we keep? Are we going to grow? Are we going to, you know, do we have, mm-hmm. because we have to, we have to be able to feed them year round. Right. So, yeah. um, and the off grazing season is, can be challenging to find feed. And mm-hmm. so we're constantly every year trying to figure out what that right number is to maintain our herds. I, we've been growing our goat herd, so I've sold very few goats since I've owned it. You know, we've also, this is the other thing that we've done is we developed um, goat weather herds, so the castrated males. So we have about 1,800, probably about 1,800 um, castrated males. So they're not breeding stock, sure. right? Yeah. But they are very, very hardy, efficient grazers. Um, they can get to be very big. And so they're eating more, they're covering more ground in a day than a, than a young doe would, for example. And so the weather herds that we put together are doing really great work on, um, the, the more, the dense, the dense brush areas, the canyons, that kind of stuff. And they don't have to be, uh, they don't have to be on as high quality feed on the off season. And it's amazing how well they do when we, because we're really com- we're really sheep people who started doing goats, right? So okay. what we learned okay. is that goats can really maintain a great high level of health on what we would consider lesser quality feed. Mm-hmm. Um, the sheep we require higher quality feed to stay healthier, mm-hmm. and so um, the the weather herds have been really we we love we love the weather herds. They've been really good for the business. Yeah. Well, I'm just, as I'm like hearing you and thinking through this, like your business model is such a strong, resilient business. Like you're, and, and it's intentional and thought through too. Like you're, you're, it sounds like you're kidding and lambing in the non-grazing season so that when you get to the grazing season, you're no longer dealing with untrained offspring dealing, breaking yeah. through fences, yes. which is, you know, that was my thought. I hadn't even considered just doing it on a different season, maybe because I'm from the Midwest where the non-grazing season is winter and you don't want to have offspring right. in Minnesota. Right. But, you know, I mean, that's utilizing your your resources. You have a diverse client base. You have a product. I mean, if, if only the, the livestock offspring was served to feed them in the off season, you know, 
you have essentially free management tools now to to go generate income during the grazing season. It's just a brilliant business model. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I really like it. <laughs> I'm intrigued. So <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, it makes a lot right? Of sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it does. Can I talk a little bit about our herders? Please, yes, please. So the herders are the backbone of our business. So this type of domestic labor is really not available. And so since the 1960s, there's been um, a sheep herder, an H-2A visa program for sheep herders specifically. Originally, they it's still they call them. Now they're, you're hearing the term sheep and goat herders more, but in the, in the legislation, it's really, I think, sheep herder. And back in the 60s, they originally started coming over on these visas from um, the Basque country and Spain and France in there. Then as the economics of that, those countries improved, that labor source started stay, started becoming more limited because there's more opportunity for them in their own countries. For the last several years, many years now, the, that labor source for sheep and goat herders has shifted to mainly Peru, Chile, and Mexico. All of ours come, we have between, we have about Depends a, on a dozen, year. we have about a dozen herders at max because it fluctuates during the year. But all of ours come to us from, from uh, Peru and they're here on, um, they can stay for three years at a time and then they have to go back for a 90 day touchback before they are able to legally come back over here on a contract. And most of ours are, are all returning. We love them. They're, most of ours are all from we're all related. We've got a father, his two sons. We have his brother-in-law. We have his niece's husband. So they all recommend because, which tells us, which tells us that they love their job because they want their son to come or they want their brother to come or they want their nephew to come, you know? So because of the economics, the difference in economics here versus Peru, they're able to create whole other businesses for their families in Peru that their families then are able to maintain while they're here over here generating more income. And so it really works out well and we're very grateful for them. And, and I think they're grateful for, for their jobs that they have. So we, we couldn't do it without them. So I just want to make sure um, I got that in because we love our herders so much. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I apologize for missing it. And I'm glad you did because that is obviously a vital part of your business. And it's so cool that you've developed these relationships. Obviously, they love what they do and they love working with you that they're coming back. And do they stay for the entire year or do they go home during the off season, non-grazing season? Most of the time, it, de it depends. So they are able to, they're able to go home if it's, they're in a, they're in three consecutive one-year contracts. And so Okay. If it if the relationship doesn't work out between the employee and the and the owner, they're able to uh, they're able to mutually sever that contract, mm -hmm. um, and they can potentially go work for another owner or they can go back to Peru. Most of them stay for their full three years and then return for ninety days and then come back. Past two years, that's been a little different with COVID and everything. Sure. We, it was difficult for them to get home, and then it was difficult for them to get back and. But we have a few who have, like I mentioned, started their own businesses in Peru. And mm -hmm. so they've been coming, working during our high grazing season and then going back during our lambing and kidding when our our workload decreases, they'll mm -hmm. then go back to Peru during that time. So we have a few that go back annually. No, that, that's so cool. 
Is there anything that I missed uh, in addition to the herders that you would want to share that I, I haven't asked you about? I think we covered most of it. I think we covered most of it. Yeah, you know, the, I think you we touched on it, but I really want to say this really is a service. I'm mm -hmm. a service provider. I think that's why we've been able to grow is because we see this as a service we're providing. We're not looking at this. We're not coming in and saying, oh, this is my acreage to control for the next 20 days. Yeah. It's a, it's a, which is a bit of, which is a quite a shift, I think, yeah. from the commercial, um, commercial sheep ranching business traditionally. Mm -hmm. um, so we're constantly, we know we're providing a service. And so we really want to have great client contact. We want to be responsive. I mean, our phones are on. Emilio, who's livestock manager, Bianca and mine, and the herder's phones are on all the time. And yes, the phone rings in the middle of the night. And yes, goats get out and, uh, <laughs> you know, dogs get lost and all of that happens. But uh, it's important that you are, are responsive and really don't forget you're providing a service for people. Yeah, I think the point that, you know, fundamentally, the work we're doing is not new. Right. right. This has been done. Mm -hmm. My great grandfathers came to the U.S. from the Basque country as sheep herders and fundamentally did the exact same thing that we're still mm -hmm. doing today. Sure. But there is this shift between being just a commercial sheep rancher and being a targeted grazer in that we are providing a service. Like she said, you know, we're not just out. We don't just build the fence and throw the sheep out there or whatever. We have mm -hmm. to do things a little bit differently, which does require more work on our end. It can be a bit more frustrating because it's not always our plan, right? We have to do, we, we are working for someone. And so that definitely offers another layer of complication, but it is something we're more than interested in continuing to do because we know at the end of the day that the service we're providing can save neighborhoods mm -hmm. and communities and schools. You know, we, we're making a huge impact. And it's, it's worth it to continue doing what we're doing. Yeah. So for somebody who loves what they've just heard and is thinking, you know, how can I start a service-based business, whether it's in California or somewhere entirely different, you know, in, in the Midwest, what I've heard more so people are doing is grazing under solar arrays is kind of a service, uh, vegetation yes. management under solar mm -hmm. arrays. What are your recommendations or thoughts or little tips or pieces of advice for anybody who might try to build a service-based livestock grazing business? Well, uh, that's, uh, it's always tricky It's because it's different everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know so this, I know that I often get calls for very small projects and I've often thought that if I could get the right young person with a horse trailer and a pickup and is willing to sleep nearby and 25 goats that I could find work for them because I get those calls, but it's just, uh, it's too hard for me to manage that, you know? Sure. So yeah. I, I often think that if, if a young person can figure that out, Sorry. recognizing that you have to be prepared to feed them yourself year round mm -hmm. one way or another, um, I really feel like there might be an opportunity there, but you know, owning livestock is a, is a 24 seven deal, right? Mm -hmm. It's like having a baby, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, well, you have to be, if you're having, if you're going to have livestock, you have to be prepared to mm -hmm. take care of them every day of the year. Yeah. And so I think that is one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. Yeah. It's that commitment to being responsible all of the time. You know, it's not a nine to five at all. Yeah. And it can't, it will never be a nine to five. Right. <laughs> 
guess that's the one advantage that weed eaters have over you is when they shut them off, they just put exactly. them in the shed and they're good. Right. <laughs> they have a, yeah. yeah. But uh, there's obviously way more tremendous benefits that you can serve per, or do with, with your, your management style. Um, are there resources that you would recommend certain, you know, it sounds like, you know, maybe Google Maps or any other resources, books, things that were vital for you early on or that you depend on today that you would uh, recommend people check out? QuickBooks and Google Maps. We use a lot of Excel spreadsheets, Google Maps and QuickBooks. I've often tried to, not often, there was a period of time where I really was looking for some electronic version that I could use for scheduling these herds, mm, you know, mm. but I, it, it changes so it, often. There's no reason to commit to anything that's got a set yeah. schedule. Yeah. It, I think too, difficult. you know, different universities out of state, out of California, they are working on a new targeted grazing handbook, but there are okay. some resources. I think Colorado state or Utah has some sort of targeted grazing handbook style of material. That's really informative and helpful more and more, predominantly through universities and other, um, like what would you call ASI American sheep industry right now is working on their second, second, um, volume of the targeted grazing handbook. And it's supposed to be available, I believe in like the spring, but more and more there are universities that are putting on different presentations and having graze targeted grazers come on and do presentations about their work and what they do and kind of showing some background on how operations work. And I think, reaching out and looking into different agricultural universities might would be a useful way for someone to kind of get more educated mm-hmm. on these practices. Well, I, you're already dealing with phone calls from the public and from people and random emails from podcasters like me. But if people wanted to reach <laughs> out and y'all were okay with it, where would you send people to learn more about what you're doing or to reach out if they, if they wanted to? Yeah, we, um, we have a website, which is just our name, starcreeklandstewards.com. That's got a lot of good information on it, but then also has a contact us form that we are on every day. Mm-hmm. Also, our Instagram has got a lot of uh, like very quick, rapid updating of what's going on with us different times of the year. You know, like right now we're in la- full-blown lambing season. So there's like lots of that kind of material on there. And that's also just at Stark Creek Land Stewards. Um, but if you want to contact us, I think going straight through our website yeah. is the best way. We're often updating the website in general with more information as things are coming up. So I think that's probably the best place to go. Well, Andre, Bianca, thank you so much. This was an incredible story, what you guys are doing. I really appreciate you taking some time just to share your story with our listeners. I know they'll find a lot of value in it. Well, thank hey, you. Yeah, thank you. And congratulations on your baby. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com. <laughs>